Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Yak Talk, Hacking the Boards. I'm Ben. And I'm Yakov. And today's episode is on all the causes of lower GI bleed other than colon cancer, which we covered in the last episode. The truth is there aren't that many testable causes of lower GI bleed. Colon cancer, diverticulosis, and angiodysplasia are the main three causes in older individuals. We'll also be covering mesenteric ischemia, which doesn't always cause bleeding, but is a highly tested concept as well as hemorrhoids, which are more of a rectal pathology, but can definitely cause bleeding. And by the way, IBD will have its own episode, even though it can definitely cause lower GI bleeding as well. Let's jump in, Yakov. All right. So for our first case, Ben, we have a 55-year-old male coming in for his screening colonoscopy. He denies recent weight changes or blood in his stool, but he endorses many years of constipation. His diet mostly consists of fast food and pre-made meals. Colonoscopy shows outpouchings in his sigmoid colon. So Ben, what are these outpouchings called and how do they occur? So this patient has asymptomatic diverticulosis, uh, which are outpouchings in the colon due to increased intraluminal pressure. Great. And what puts this patient at risk for diverticulosis? His chronic constipation, since frequent straining increases pressure and causes herniation over time, and his low fiber, high meat diet contributes as well. Other risk factors include obesity, smoking, and a sedentary lifestyle. And why aren't the diverticula that we described in this patient consistent throughout the whole colon? Good question, because they typically arise only at the weak spots in the muscle where the vasa recta penetrate. And what do we give this patient to prevent further complications from his diverticulosis? You would give him fiber supplements and counseling on lifestyle modification for a high fiber, healthier diet. Speaking of complications, let's say this same patient presents to the ED 15 years later, so at 70 years old, with a large amount of bright red blood per rectum and an intense urge to defecate. He's also dizzy, lightheaded, and his vitals are tanking. Let's say his blood pressure is 80 over 50, heart rate is tachycardic. What's going on with the patient now? So this sounds like a diverticular bleed, which is actually the most common cause of massive lower GI bleed in adults. He's lost so much blood that he's in hemorrhagic shock. Great. And what was the other term for bright red blood per rectum that we spoke about last time? And why would that be the expected presentation for a diverticular bleed? That would be hematochesia, which usually occurs with left-sided colonic bleeds because the heme hasn't been digested. How do we differentiate this from a lower GI bleed that's due to something else like colon cancer? So colon cancer almost never presents with an acute bleed or hemodynamic instability, though either can present with progressive occult bleeding and anemia. That being said, a colonoscopy is performed anyway to confirm the cause in an acute diverticular bleed. And listeners can check out our hemorrhagic shock lecture for more details, but briefly, how should this patient in hemorrhagic shock from his diverticular bleed be managed? Two, large bore IVs, volume resuscitation with blood products. Usually, diverticular bleeds resolve spontaneously, though sometimes surgical intervention may be warranted. Great. So with that, let's move on to a case about a different complication of diverticulosis. Ben, take it away. Will do. A 50-year-old female with past medical history of ovarian cyst, several UTIs, and constipation comes in with two days of left lower quadrant pain, urinary urgency, anorexia, and one episode of vomiting. Other than a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius, her vitals are normal. Physical exam reveals only tenderness to palpation in the lower left quadrant. UA is positive for leukocyte esterase and negative for nitrites. 
CBC shows a leukocytosis of 13,000. I know that's a lot of information, but what does this presentation sound like? So this sounds like it could be a few different things, but diverticulitis is definitely the most likely cause given the symptoms you described. Before we really delve into diverticulitis, what is your differential here and what makes diverticular disease more likely? So based on the pain being described in the lower left quadrant and history of ovarian cysts, I was thinking either a ruptured cyst or even ovarian torsion could be possible. Her history of UTIs and positive UA are concerning for maybe another UTI as well. But diverticulitis is the most likely uh, cause here because ovarian pathology wouldn't really affect your UA, your urinalysis, and would likely affect her vitals. And a UTI wouldn't likely cause lower left quadrant pain and vomiting like we see in this patient. Yeah, love your reasoning there. Thanks for taking us through it. What is diverticulitis? So diverticulitis is when food particles become trapped in the existing diverticula that we, that we described before, and that leads to microperforation, inflammation, and infection. That sounds awful. What about these urinary symptoms, though? So interestingly, about a tenth of patients with diverticulitis present with urinary urgency due to the inflamed diverticula irritating the bladder wall. And test writers love to trick us with that. So uh, be ready for that. We, we know better. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, how do we diagnose diverticulitis? Usually with a CT abdomen with contrast. And what are some classic findings on this? So on the CT, you'll see inflammatory changes, which they'll usually describe as bowel wall thickening and or pericolonic fat stranding, usually around the sigmoid colon. How do we treat diverticulitis in this patient? Since this particular patient is stable, young, and immunocompetent with only a mild fever and leukocytosis, she can actually be treated on an outpatient basis with bowel rest and oral Cipro and metronidazole. Counter cue though, why, hmm. would we why would we choose these antibiotics, the Cipro and the metronidazole? Ooh, nice one. So we want to use ciprofloxacin to cover gram-negative rods, and we want to add on Metro for better anaerobic coverage, which are the two main types of bacteria we're worried about in the gut. Thank you for that great counter cue, but it's my turn, Yaakov. Okay, Back fine. off. Uh, let's say we send her home but she comes back to the ED two days later, complaining of worsening left lower quadrant pain and nausea. Her fever has increased to 38.8 Celsius and repeat CT shows a six centimeter enhancing fluid collection in the sigmoid colon. What's going on now? So this sounds like she has one of the several complications of diverticulitis, specifically a diverticular abscess. And what do we have to do for her now based on that diagnosis? Because the abscess is large, meaning greater than three to four centimeters, we'd have to get percutaneous drainage with CT guidance. Then we'd admit her to see if she needs surgery based on symptom resolution. Hmm. What is another feared complication of diverticulitis, which requires emergent surgical intervention? That would be when the microperforation actually turns into a regular old perforation and contents from the colon can spill into the abdominal cavity and cause lots of issues. Oof, how will that generally present? Usually the patient will have several days of diverticulitis symptoms, like we described before, followed by a sudden pain during the perforation itself, then temporary relief of pain from colon decompression, and finally peritonitis and potentially even sepsis. That's why we want to treat diverticulitis as soon as possible. Let's move on to a different cause of lower GI bleed. Yaakov, take us away. Great. So for our next case, we have a 73-year-old female coming into the ED with the worst abdominal pain of her life. 
You don't have any of her medical records, but her wife tells you that the patient just got sent home from a different hospital for, quote, a cardiovascular issue. That's all you know. Hmm. She also tells you that the patient has diabetes and a 30-pack year smoking history. Exam is positive only for mild peri-umbilical tenderness to palpation. Ben, it's a little tricky, but what pathology does this sound like? And what's the classic hint that I gave in the question stem? So that sounds like acute mesenteric ischemia, especially because the pain is out of proportion to exam, which is the classic buzzword for it. She also seems to have risk factors for vascular disease, such as diabetes and smoking. What exactly is mesenteric ischemia? That's when decreased blood flow to the intestines results in inflammation and subsequent abdominal pain. Great. Let's get into some of the different etiologies of mesenteric ischemia, since that's how they like to test on this pathology on exams. Why, Ben, do you think I left this case of our 73-year-old so vague? Probably because there are so many different causes, most of which involve the cardiovascular system, and you want to test me on the differential. Right you are, Ben. Right you are. So let's walk through a little differential for mesenteric ischemia. Let's say I told you that her ischemia was caused by an embolus. What are three etiologies that come to mind for emboli that can cause acute mesenteric ischemia? So two, we already discussed in our CV episodes. One is a mural thrombus from a left ventricular aneurysm post-MI. And then the other is a thrombus from AFib, either of which could embolize and cause acute mesenteric ischemia. A third cause could be a septic embolus from infective endocarditis vegetations, though that's more likely to be seen in someone using IV drugs, for example, and not our 73-year-old female. That's a perfect walkthrough of that differential, and we'll get into infective endocarditis during our infectious disease chapter. Let's say I told you that our patient just underwent a surgical procedure. Would that narrow down our differential? Yes, since they're just two commonly tested procedures that might lead to bowel ischemia. One is abdominal aortic aneurysm repair, and the other is cabbage for coronary artery disease, both of which can result in severely decreased perfusion to the bowel. And do these two types of etiologies generally present the same? Actually, no. So embolic disease usually causes small bowel ischemia, while hypoperfusion more often causes ischemic colitis. Great. So can we clarify the difference between all those terms for the listeners? For sure. Mesenteric, intestinal, and bowel ischemia all mean the same thing, and they're all general terms for pathologically decreased perfusion to either the large or small intestine. A subtype of this pathology is ischemic colitis, which only involves the large intestine, and as we mentioned, is usually from hypoperfusion. Great. That always used to confuse me. So good to clarify. Now, how will the presentation of bowel ischemia differ between small and large intestines? So acute small bowel ischemia will generally not have hematochesia until later in the disease, while ischemic colitis often presents with hematochesia in addition to the severe abdominal pain. And why does ischemic colitis present with early bleeding? Because the hypoperfusion that's causing it leads to erosion of mucosa in watershed areas like the splenic flexure and rectosigmoid junction, and therefore rapid development of ulcers in those areas. Great. Now that we've covered some etiologies and definitions, let's get into diagnostics and management. So what are some lab abnormalities often seen in acute mesenteric ischemia? Leukocytosis and lactic acidosis with an accompanying anion-gap metabolic acidosis are the classic lab findings but you can also see elevated amylase and lipase. So be careful not to mix this up with pancreatitis. 
Nice. And what imaging do we use to diagnose acute mesenteric ischemia? Usually a CT angiography, but the test wants us to know that a mesenteric angiography can also be used. For ischemic colitis, the diagnosis is usually confirmed with colonoscopy as well. What is usually seen on uh, all of those tests? CT will show thickening of the affected segment and fat stranding. Colonoscopy will show ulcerations for ischemic colitis. And briefly, how is acute mesenteric ischemia treated? In most cases, bowel rest, IV fluids, and antibiotics covering for enterics will do the trick. Sometimes, such as in the case of necrosis and or perforation, surgery is warranted. So finally, for this topic, let's say our patient gets better with conservative management. Two years later, she comes in complaining that she has abdominal pain and cramping after every meal specifically. What's likely going on here and what do we do about it? This sounds like she now has chronic mesenteric ischemia, also known as intestinal angina. She should get repeat imaging, such as a CTA, and treatment involves smoking cessation and often revascularization. Great. So with that, let's move on to a cause of lower GI bleed that is notorious for its pimping potential. I agree with that one, Yak. We have a 74-year-old male, past medical history of hypertension and osteoarthritis, who comes in after passing dark maroon stools for the past week. He has started to feel slightly fatigued over the past couple of months, especially when going on walks. Exam is notable for conjunctival pallor, a three out of six holosystolic murmur, and delayed carotid pulses. What's the likely cause of this patient's GI bleed? So Ben, this sounds like angiodysplasia to me. What is that, Yakov? So angiodysplasia is when arteriovenous malformations or AVMs develop in the lower GI tract along with submucosal venous dilation. And what gives you the idea that this patient has angiodysplasia and not colon cancer, for example? It can actually be pretty tricky since they both can cause melanin and iron deficiency anemia. What sets this case apart is one, the lack of systemic symptoms, and two, the association of angiodysplasia with aortic stenosis, which this patient has clear signs of uh, from the question stem. We heard about his murmur and the delayed carotid pulse. So putting all that together, angiodysplasia seems like the most likely. I have to be honest, Yakov. there is way too much CV in this GI lecture. What is the connection between aortic stenosis and angiodysplasia, which makes for great wards fodder? Yeah, I actually got pimped on this one. So uh, that makes this personal. So aortic stenosis is thought to cause breakdown of von Willebrand factor multimers, which may be involved in preventing and repairing those AVMs we talked about. We're not exactly sure why the colon is particularly affected, but bleeding has been shown to remit after the aortic valve uh, is replaced. So really the thing you want to remember is shearing or breaking down of von Willebrand factor multimers. Yeah, that's pretty cool and also mysterious. I agree. How is angiodysplasia diagnosed and how is it treated? So the answer to your first question is colonoscopy. And Mm -hmm. the answer to your second question is colonoscopy. Hmm. Specifically, we'll want to cauterize those bleeding vessels. Thank you for answering both of my questions so well. Of course. What is another cause of lower GI bleed, which can present similarly to angiodysplasia, but in a patient with a history of prostate cancer, for example? So if you're on the fence about angiodysplasia, but the question stem also mentions prostate cancer, you want to think about chronic radiation proctitis, which has telangiectasias on colonoscopy. And that's a result of radiotherapeutic fibrosis of the rectal mucosa. Speaking of, let's move on to the lowest GI bleed of them all. And I'll add the lowest yield. So for our final case on lower GI bleeds, we have a healthy 35-year-old male 
coming in with painless bright red blood in two bowel movements. He has no abdominal pain and digital rectal exam is negative for masses. What does this sound like, Ben? So this sounds like an internal hemorrhoid, the most common cause of painless rectal bleeding across all ages. It could also have been an anal fissure, but that would be apparent on exam usually. And what should we do for this patient? First, we'd get an anoscopy to rule out anything else. Great. So the let's say the anoscopy shows purplish mucosal bulges. What do we do now? Any surgery or anything like that? Nope. We send him home on a high fiber diet and recommend behavioral changes like limiting fat, alcohol, and time on toilet. Great. So what if this was a 50-year-old patient instead? So we'd also get a colonoscopy in that case to rule out other causes of GI bleed. Since in patients older than 45 years, you have to be more worried about other etiologies that we've spoken about before. Nice. So let's say this patient comes back 20 years later. Wow. That's a really long time. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he, he's got a whole family now and everything. <laughs> anyway, so this 55 year old gentleman comes in with intense anal pain and profuse bleeding. So pretty different than his first presentation. He admits he's been constipated lately and was straining on the toilet when the pain started. Exam reveals exquisitely tender purplish bulges in his lower rectum. So what's going on here? Sounds like he's developed external hemorrhoids and now they've become thrombosed. So why are these painful as opposed to the internal hemorrhoids that we talked about when the patient was 20 years younger? Because external hemorrhoids, meaning venous dilation below the dentate line, have pain innervation, while internal hemorrhoids do not. Great. So what do we do for this patient with thrombosed external hemorrhoids? Do we just give him a, a little sits bath? Nope. You're going to have to take him to surgery. So although external hemorrhoids can usually be treated conservatively with topical lidocaine, nitroglycerin, and sits baths, severe refractory or thrombosed hemorrhoids need to be surgically removed. Nice. And that brings us to the bottom of this episode. <laughs> I see what you did there, Yak. See you all next time. <laughs>